let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us today, members, guests, uh, to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. Hope your uh, weekend proves to be a happy one, full of, what, barbecuing, abundant corn on the cob, no want or scarcity in your pantry. Uh, uh, you know, for all of its faults, we, we are in a country that allows us to gather, worship our God in freedom, and praise God for that. Uh, as Randy suggested, we're going to talk about baptism today. Uh, we, are fi- we finished one book. We finished Habakkuk. We're going to start Nahum next week. Um, after that, there's going to be the critical theory, critical theory in general, critical race theory specifically that we'll talk about in August, a couple of weeks on that. And then in the fall, we'll be in Ephesians. So roughly speaking, that's where we're going in terms of the church's preaching ministry. Uh, what we do today is uh, unusual. Normally, we take a text, we look at it in detail and apply it. Uh, today, we're going to look uh, in a more topical manner at the whole issue of baptism. It's fitting. We celebrated uh, as six, last week as six individuals in our church gave their lives to Christ. We celebrated the grace of Jesus in their life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was celebratory. It was joyful. And so we're going to take this opportunity to think more clearly about baptism. And uh, let's start with Matthew 28. I'll use this as my launching pad, but we'll go all over the place. Uh, Matthew 28, uh, 18 through 20. These are the words of the risen Christ at the end of Matthew's gospel. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that all your ways are good and wise. Everything that you desire and the means that you ordain to bring about your purposes, they are wise. Father, help us to rest in that fact. We may not always understand how you are being wise in the orchestration of our lives and circumstances. Let us trust that you are. Let us submit to your wisdom. And Father, even as we confess that yours is an infallible and perfect wisdom, we confess that so often, Lord, we are bewildered by the moral ambiguities of life. Uh, Help us, Lord, to walk increasingly in your wisdom, to be able to interpret the world around us in our own circumstances in light of your word, and to discern your will and to have the strength to do it. Father, you have said that if we ask for wisdom, you would grant it. We ask that as individuals here at CBC and as a community, our thoughts, our assumptions would be increasingly shaped by your word. Uh, If there are blind spots, if we've adopted uh, unbiblical assumptions and ideologies, please reveal those that we might repent and think rightly and biblically about ourselves and the world that you have made. Uh, Please use your word this morning to deepen our understanding of the uh, sacrament of baptism. We pray that our love for you would grow as we see all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, So this morning, we will ask and, Lord willing, answer three questions about baptism. The first is, what is baptism? Second, who should be baptized? And third, at what age should a child be baptized? We'll devote most of our attention to that third question. Uh, There are a lot of younger families in the church Uh, young children running around, and that's uh, increasingly a a significant question. At what point should we baptize 
our children? What do we look for? How do we, how do we think about that? And uh, we'll try to say something about that uh, question. So what is baptism? In brief, baptism is a ritual instituted by Christ to mark the beginning of the Christian life. It is a ritual instituted by Christ to mark the beginning of the Christian life. And it involves, of course, the immersion of a person into water and then lifting them back up, as we saw last week. Uh, I'm going to use the words ordinances and sacraments interchangeably. Sometimes those are differentiated for our purposes. Uh, I'll use those words interchangeably to refer to the two rituals that Christ has given to the church, baptism and Lord's Supper. And we know that there are two because uh, those are explicitly sanctioned by Jesus. Uh, The Lord's Supper was instituted on the night of our Lord's betrayal. And in the passage that we read in Matthew, baptism is instituted as one of the rites uh, that Christians apply, especially at the beginning of the Christian life. Uh, Jesus commands us and commands his original apostles uh, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Those who profess faith in Christ should be uh, baptized. Now, the symbolism of baptism, what God communicates to us through uh, the waters of baptism is that through the shed blood of his son, Jesus, we are washed of all moral impurity and defilement. Just as water washes dirt and filth from our bodies, so also the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ cleanses us of all moral pollution such that we are spotless and holy before the Father. All those who trust in Jesus are spotless and holy before God. Uh, we see the uh, symbolism, the, the connection between uh, moral cleansing and the cleansing in water. Uh, we see these two things brought together in Acts twenty-two sixteen. In that context, the Apostle Paul is recounting his conversion and how a brother named Ananias came to him and how God used Ananias to bring Paul to faith. And Paul par- quotes Ananias who says, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, a misreading of that verse would be to say, it's baptism as such that washes away our sins. In fact, faith by itself, even apart from baptism, makes us right with God, Romans 5.1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Faith by itself is sufficient uh, to wash us of our sins and make us right with God. It is the calling on his name that causes our sins to be washed away, but this moral purification is pictured in baptism. Uh, In the the waters of baptism, God is saying to us, here's a symbol of what has taken uh, place through Jesus Christ. You have been washed through my son Jesus. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.11, same thing. Uh, Paul describes the, the work of Jesus in this way. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus do for us? He washes us, he makes us clean. However dark the stains of sin are, he takes them away so we can be spotless and holy before God. So in baptism, God speaks to us. He says that through my son Jesus, you have been cleansed. But in baptism, we also speak a word back to God. That passage that I read from Matthew's gospel We are told to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This means that we come under the authority of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pledge our allegiance to God. We say, God, you are the center of my life. I henceforth live for you. In baptism, we pledge our allegiance to the triune God. We pledge our allegiance 
to King Jesus. We say before the church and the world, I follow Christ. He is my savior and he is my king. We need to reflect perhaps more often than we do on our baptism. We need to remember that if we are trusting in Jesus, the stains of sin are decisively taken away. Not just some of our sins, the lighter ones, but all of our sins have been decisively washed by Jesus. One of the most universally miserable experiences is to have a guilty conscience. I think the ancients described it as the conscience spitting fire in your face, which is apt. We know what that's like. We know how a guilty conscience paralyzes each impulse down to indecision. Instead of living in freedom and joy and confidence, we're paralyzed by moral anguish. Well, the cross of Christ answers the accusations of a guilty conscience. Every wicked thing that we have done has been decisively washed by Jesus. That sin that causes us to be full of guilt has been taken away in the sight of God. In his sight, through Jesus, we are pure and holy, and that means we can walk in freedom and in joy, knowing that we are holy and pure before God. So remember that you've been cleansed. And secondly, remember the pledge that you've made when you were baptized. You're going to live for the triune God. But we know that the default of our hearts is not to put God at the center. It's to put something other than God at the center of our lives. To put ourselves, perhaps, at the center. We're often tempted to use Jesus to get what we really want. It might be more money, a good marriage, obedient kids, whatever it is. That's the, that's the temptation that we face. But we need to recall, we've said that we are living for God. Is that true of you? Are you living for his glory, seeking his purposes above all else? Or are you living for yourself? Remember the pledge, the commitment that you made to God in baptism. So that's what baptism is. In baptism, God speaks to us. Your sins have been forgiven through Jesus, and we speak to him. We pledge our allegiance to the triune God. Who should be baptized? Not infants. Uh, getting ahead of myself. Oh, getting ahead of myself. Whoa, slow down. Uh, there's an ongoing debate among Christians like many of my theological heroes, many of the pastors I deeply admire are on the other side of this issue. And they believe that the infants of believing parents should be baptized because they're in the covenant. Uh, okay, they're mistaken, but that's not what the Bible says, but fair enough. You know, praise God uh, for what we have in common with those brothers and sisters, right? What we have in common is far more significant than what separates us, but still. Uh, they're not right on this, on this point of doctrine. Um, we are a Baptistic church, meaning that we believe uh, that we should baptize those who make a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Faith comes first, we trust in Jesus as our Savior, and then we uh, administer baptism to that person. This is evident in a variety of ways in Scripture, not least in the symbolism of baptism. What are we declaring in baptism? This person has been washed well, an infant who has not yet exercised faith in Jesus, that's not yet true. So even the symbolism, my view, doesn't quite fit. Uh, 1 Peter 3.21, here's what Peter says about baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. So Peter is saying that baptism is not automatically beneficial, the removal of dirt from the body. Right? Uh, it is beneficial as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, whatever Peter means by an appeal to God for a good conscience, we could translate it as a pledge to God for a good conscience, that we are committing to walk in obedience to God. That's possible. Or uh, we are receiving the promises of God in baptism. We are appealing to him. 
on the basis of his promise. Whatever Peter means exactly, it is evident that infants can't do that. They can't appeal to God for a good conscience, which Peter says is what happens in baptism. It's another biblical argument against the baptism of infants. Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So those who have been baptized are also spiritually united to Christ. But again, which wouldn't be necessarily true uh, for an infant. Uh, all of these things, and we could point to other scriptures as well, suggest that it is those who make a credible profession of faith in Jesus who should be baptized. Now, if you're here this morning, and you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior, but you've never been baptized, let me make it clear, you should be. Jesus wants you to be baptized. That's the first and simplest step of obedience. Receive the Christian rite of baptism. Now, maybe you're just ignorant and you didn't know, oh, I didn't realize I was supposed to be baptized. Um, you should be. And so now you know. There's no excuse. You can come talk to me after the service. Uh, one of the other pastors at CBC, Pastor Chuck Oltman, uh, Randy Short, uh, we would love to talk about that and baptize you. You should be. Jesus commands it. Uh, if you knew that Jesus was commanding you to be baptized and you've chosen not to, you're disobeying Jesus. It's a sin, and you should still be baptized. Talk to us. But I want to make it very clear that if you're trusting in Jesus, you ought to be baptized. Okay. Third question. At what age should prof a professing child be baptized? Granted that a person who's baptized should make a credible profession of faith, what age should a child who professes faith be baptized? And here we get into some difficult territory. Baptistic Christians are all over the place in response to this question. Uh, at one end of the spectrum, spectrum, we have like Capitol Hill Baptist Church by Mark Dever, wonderful pastor, writes helpful books on, on the church. Uh, on that end of the spectrum, they would say, don't baptize till a child is basically no longer a child, an adult, 16 to 18 years of age. Then we can have relative certainty about the credibility of their profession. Their faith has been tested by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we can have a higher level of confidence that they really are following Christ. Let's baptize them then. One uh, gentle critique would be that in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. Many hear about Jesus, they believe, and many are baptized that day seemingly. What that means is they would have had very little time to overly scrutinize professions of faith if it happened that day. Uh, so perhaps this approach on this end of the spectrum overly scrutinizes uh, the profession of children. Then on the other end, this is a view advocated by Joe Rigney, who if I'm not mistaken is the president of a seminary in uh, Minneapolis, he would say baptize them young, even as early as four or five or six when they make a profession of faith, baptize them young. I think this view has some limitations, not least because, as I'll try to argue, uh, it seems that what the New Testament says about the sacraments presupposes a level of developmental maturity that, generally speaking, is not found in a four-, five-, or six-year-old. Uh, finally, this is the view that I would commend to you. I would say, wait till a child is about 10. Wait till a child is about 10. Uh, part of the problem is there is no chapter and verse that decisively tells us what the answer to this question is, and so we've got various biblical strands of biblical data, and we're drawing inferences from what we know in Scripture and trying to come to the best conclusion. So I, I want to be very clear that, the, you know, even if someone lands in a different place, there should be lots of charity when it comes to this, uh, because I do think it's, a, it's hard to have certainty on this issue. Uh, but, but the position I'm advoca advocating for is about 10. And the first thing I would note is that it is possible to both affirm a child's faith and withhold baptism. 
It is possible to both affirm a child's faith and wait on baptism. Sometimes the argument is made that if you, uh, for you to affirm a child's faith, to say your faith is real, we have to baptize that child. I'm suggesting that it's possible in certain circumstances to both affirm a child's faith and withhold baptism for reasons that I'll, I'll mention shortly. But the first thing I wanna say is that when a child who's brought up to trust in Christ professes faith in Christ, in general, apart from good reasons for not doing this, we should affirm the faith of that child. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So Christian parents in general, and fathers specifically, are called to intentionally shape the children God, that God has given to them. They are called to be intentional about praying with those children, reading scripture with those children, pointing them to Jesus consistently. Uh, when uh, one, of the one of your children takes a, a toy from his sister, Maybe clubs her with it. Uh, our response is to go, oh, you know, we, we see that as a nuisance. Stop it. Give her the toy back, right? Uh, what we should see, though, is an opportunity. We have an opportunity to show that child what's in their heart. We have an opportunity to pull that child aside and say, hey, uh, you exhibited no love for your sister. In fact, you could care less about her. You were only caring about yourself. You treated her cruelly. Uh, you didn't love your sister. I want you to understand that what you did is a big deal. You have sinned against God. God is not okay with what you've done. It is wicked in his sight. And don't just leave them there, right? Uh, start there, show them their sinfulness, and then do what Christians are supposed to do, which is point them to Jesus. This was really wicked, but we have a really great Savior. God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world to die for us. And when we are aware of our sin and guilt, we go to Jesus, we confess our sins, and because of his shed blood, we can know that God forgives us. So there is hope for you. Run to Jesus. We are both showing them the reality about themselves, that they are sinners, and then pointing them to the only place there's hope in the universe, and that is Jesus Christ. As parents, we want to be forming our kids this way. We want to be applying the gospel of Jesus Christ in the ordinary circumstances of life. We want to help our kids develop a God consciousness. As we're just walking about the, you know, the neighborhood at night, we point to the stars and say, who made those? God made those. Isn't he beautiful? Look at the trees. God made those trees. Uh, children aren't born with a robust God consciousness. This is something that we want to cultivate and be intentional about. And I, I commend to you the practice of family worship, if you're not doing it, regularly, consistently, daily, gathering with your children, spending some time in prayer, reading God's word, instructing them in the fundamental doctrines of our faith. Uh, the effect of that is that over time, they grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ and what he has done for them. Uh, I, I want us to have a culture here at CBC where it is expected that if, uh, if parents have children, if there's a family with children, they are very intentionally shaping and discipling those kids. We should regularly encourage one another in that way. There, God's main way for making himself known to your children is you and through your intentional disciple making of your kids, right? And so we need to be encouraging one another in that responsibility. Are you spending time with your children? Are you praying with them? Are you encouraging them? Are you pointing them to Jesus Christ? Now, some of you may be hearing this, and your heart is sinking because your kids are not so young anymore. You, in some ways, you regret the fact that you've missed some opportunities. Uh, perhaps you feel guilt. If that's you, let me remind you what baptism says. Let me remind you about the symbolism of baptism, which we talked about earlier, and that is Jesus fully, finally, completely takes away all sin. 
If you have failed in this responsibility that Christ gives to you, acknowledge that. Confess that to Jesus and receive his forgiveness. You can't change the past. It's past. It's done. But do what you can in the present. Uh, there's still probably lots of things you can be doing for your children, regardless of where, where they are, not least praying for them. So take initiative. Do what you can, even if your children are older. Acknowledge, well, I should have done more of this. I didn't realize this was a duty that I had. Acknowledge that and encourage them now. But I say all of this to say that the, as we are regularly pointing our children to Jesus and teaching them about Christ and telling them to believe in Jesus and su submit to Jesus as their king, we should not be surprised that many of them at a young age will start to say, I believe in Jesus. I want to follow him as my king and I trust in him as my savior. What we want as Christian parents are boring conversions for our kids. Like, that should be the norm. This idea that there needs to be some sort of cataclysmic event when they're 18, and their, their broken body leads them to come to their senses, right? And they have this dramatic testimony. Sometimes it happens that way. Praise God when it does. Praise God when it doesn't happen that way. Praise God when from the age of five, they're walking in the light. And we should expect that God saves sinners, and as we faithfully instruct our kids, God will save kids. We should parent with a sense of expectation and faith in the promises of God. Now, it doesn't always happen that way, but we should parent with faith that God saves sinners and he saves even our children. And so what, as you're teaching your child, they're going to come to you, I, I believe in Jesus. I trust in him. And when there isn't a clear reason for doubting that profession of faith, I believe that profession of faith should be encouraged. Praise God you believe in Jesus. Continue believing in Jesus. There's a danger in meeting that kind of profession with skepticism. Uh, the danger is this, we're communicating to the child, uh, belief in Jesus isn't enough. There is some sort of elusive bar that you need to meet, and I can't quite pinpoint what that is. And so you're teaching them to look inward at themselves rather than at Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't scrutinize a child's profession at all. There's a place for that. There are age-appropriate signs of spiritual life that we should look for. Are they exhibiting some desire for God, some desire for prayer? for truth? Tell me more about Jesus. Are they exhibiting a submission to parental authority? That's a big one. Uh, an increasing love for their siblings? Uh, we should look for these things. And where there is a, a consistent pattern uh, or a, consi a, a consistent pattern of an inconsistency between their profession and conduct, we should point that out to them. Hey, you say you believe in Jesus, uh, but you're consistently indifferent to your siblings. You don't care about them. You just do what you want to do. Those who love Jesus love others. You say you believe in Jesus, but you don't honor your mother and father. You don't submit to their authority. So we can gently bring up the, the inconsistency between their profession and their conduct. But in general, assuming there isn't a clear reason uh, to ask questions about their faith, we should, I believe, affirm their profession. They're doing what we've trained them to do. That is, trust in Jesus and walk in the light, and we should affirm it. But when it comes to younger children, four, five, six, I don't believe that we should automatically baptize them. I believe it is possible to affirm their faith, to say, praise God, you believe in Jesus, and also say, without inconsistency, uh, and, and we're going to wait on baptism until you arrive at an age, not too much older, where you can understand what God is saying to you through baptism. Uh, this anecdote may or may not be helpful, but here it is. Uh, in my own experience, and uh, my wife's as well, I grew up in a church environment that baptized uh, people at about 16 to 18, uh, basically when they were adults, and we were admitted to the Lord's Supper at that point as well. But here's the thing, growing up, I never 
I never felt like I was a second class member of the church or I wasn't really treated as a Christian. I was affirmed as a Christian, I thought of myself as a Christian, um, and it was understood that at a certain point when I reached in the context of that church, a certain you know, level of maturity, then it would be appropriate. And I share that with you by way of saying that I believe practically it is possible to say, no, you're a Christian, but let's hold off on the sacraments. Now, the reason I think we should not baptize the very young too quickly is because I think Scripture itself, in describing baptism and the Lord's Supper, suggests that there is a certain modest level of developmental maturity that rightly taking them involves. So I think that Scripture itself, I'll try to make my case here, give you three reasons for thinking that. Scripture itself suggests that there's a modest level of developmental maturity for the right reception of the sacraments. The first argument I would make is this. Baptism is not automatically effective. It's not automatically beneficial to your faith. How is baptism beneficial to your faith? Not simply the act of being dunked, that's beneficial. How is it an encouragement to your faith? And the answer is that baptism strengthens our faith when we see it as a visible confirmation of the gospel. God preaches to us in his word that if you believe in Jesus, your sins are pardoned. And then he preaches to us again in the water. It's a sermon in the water, if you like. That we who have trusted in Jesus have been cleansed. If you don't see the water as a symbol of the moral reality that you've been washed, you're not being baptized properly. If, if a, a young child simply looks at the water and goes, man, it would be nice to splash around in there on a hot July day in Phoenix, uh, they are not being baptized properly because they don't see the way that baptism reinforces the promises of the gospel. So that suggests that at a minimum, we want to baptize children at an age where they can distinguish between symbol and reality. Same thing with Lord's Supper. If the child just sees a snack, bread and juice, and doesn't see in the bread and in the juice emblems of the love of Christ, then they're probably admitted to the table prematurely. Wait till the child can distinguish between the symbol and the reality and understand how the symbol re reinforces the reality. The nature of the sacraments, I'm suggesting, would suggest that we wait until children have ripened a little bit, intellectually and psychologically. A second argument I would make is based on what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. I don't have time to do an exhaustive analysis of that uh, chapter, much as I might want to. It would take a while. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians 11, we have the most exhaustive discussion of the Lord's Supper in Scripture. And I'm assuming, of course, that baptism and the Lord's Supper go together. These are the two sacraments. To be admitted to one is to be admitted to the other. Uh, baptism begins the Christian life, and Lord's Supper is a, an ongoing rite. Well, when Paul describes uh, the, the requirements for a person to participate in the Lord's Supper... He says that to participate rightly, we ought to examine ourselves. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So when you take the Lord's Supper, there is a call by the Apostle Paul to examine ourselves. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean morbid introspection, analysis of all of our motives. Am I completely pure and completely free of sin to take? If that were the case, none of us could take it. Okay, it's not talking about that. What Paul specifically means when he says that we ought to examine ourselves is we ought to consider the message of the Lord's Supper and consider whether or not our lives match up with that message. 
The immediate problem in Corinth was that there was division in the church. There were factions, there was fighting. And Paul is saying, it is not appropriate for you to take the elements. When you are hostile and malicious and bitter towards one another, and you're going to take the elements which actually declare your unity in Christ. The sacrament says that we are one body in Jesus. We are one people, one family. The old divisions have been nailed to the cross, and we are one people, one family of God. There is unity in Christ. But if in our hearts we harbor malice and resentment, and there are broken relationships, and we are not repenting of those things, then we shouldn't take the supper. If there's hatred in your heart toward a brother or sister, and you are refusing to repent of that, you shouldn't take the supper because your life contradicts the message of the supper. Let's take it one step further. Beyond that, if in the supper we declare Jesus' victory over sin. Not only that he has taken our, the guilt of sin away, but he's broken its power. And if you know that you are living in sin against God, and you don't care, you're not repenting of it, ah, God forgives, it's okay. You're holding on to that sin, and you're refusing to repent, you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. What the, what the message of the supper is saying is contradicted by the way you're living. Now, let me be very clear about what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you've had a terrible week where you've struggled and you've fallen again and again, you should abstain from the supper. If you come to church beaten down by the reality of your sin and you know your guilt before God and your heart is burdened and you're repenting and you're seeking grace and you're asking God for forgiveness and you want to be done with your sin and yet it clings to you so closely, you're exactly the sort of person who needs to be taking the supper. Because in the elements, the bread and the juice, Jesus is reminding you of his love. He came into the world precisely for people like you. So on those terrible weeks, you absolutely should take the supper. Jesus came into the world to save sinners and the supper is a reminder of that. I'm speaking about something very specific, very narrow. It's when you know there is sin in your life and you just don't care. You are not repenting of it. That is the situation in which you should not take it because to do so is to bring down God's judgment on yourself according to, to the Apostle Paul. Now, what does this all have to do with baptism? Well, the call to moral self-scrutiny suggests that a child is sufficiently mature to be able to engage in that kind of moral self-evaluation. Is my life uh, in line with what we are celebrating in the Lord's Supper? This suggests a certain level of maturity, not necessarily a huge amount of maturity, but enough to be able to scrutinize. And I'm not, I'm not saying that children of four, five, and six don't have moral awareness, of course they do. Uh, there, there can be a sense of guilt but I'm saying that their moral awareness is not sufficiently developed to do what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 11, probably. Um, Deuteronomy 139, in speaking of younger children, describes them as those who have no knowledge of good or evil. So the younger they are, the less developed their moral awareness is. And Paul is calling for moral self-scrutiny in the supper, and that would lead us to conclude that we should wait till children are just a little bit older before we admit them to the supper. This is also reinforced, by the way, by the question 177 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, why should we care? Uh, well, these, uh, the, the confessions, the creeds of the church, they're not on par with Scripture, but they are documents and theological statements put forward by the church as a body. It's not just some random, random professor at a seminary writing a book. right? These are church documents, and so they should have a certain weight, a certain a lesser authority than scripture, but still helpful in thinking through this kind of thing. How did our brothers and sisters in the past think about it? 
And relying on 1 Corinthians 11, uh, the larger catechism says this about the supper. The Lord's Supper is to be administered often in the elements of bread and wine to represent and exhibit Christ as spiritual nourishment to the soul and to confirm our continuance and growth in him. And that only to such as are of years and ability to examine themselves. So the assumption here is the one that I've been arguing for, that the ability to examine yourself increases with age, and there is a kind of developmental maturity that moral self-examination requires. So I think this is a good reason, uh, another reason to wait till children are a little older, about the age of 10. Finally, third reason, third argument, uh, comes from what we say in baptism. I mentioned earlier that the, God speaks a word to us in baptism, tells us that our sins are pardoned, but we also pledge our allegiance to King Jesus in baptism. Now reflect for a moment on what a pledge is. This is a commitment I'm making to follow Christ. And I think we should wait until a child understands something of the weight of that commitment. After all, Jesus in Luke tells us to count the cost of following him. Uh, he tells us in Luke 14, 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, you, you want to know what following me involves? And it means giving up everything and putting my will first. And it seems right and good to wait till a child is at a point where they can understand something of what Jesus is calling them to as they pledge their allegiance to follow Christ. And in addition, it seems best to, uh, th that if you're going to make a pledge, you should be able to remember it. If you're baptized at an age where you can't remember making a pledge, somebody has to remind you, hey, you made this pledge. Can't remember making the pledge. Um, it's better to remember the pledge you make than not. And that might, might be one indication to not baptize at four or five. Baptize them at an age where they can remember what has happened. The bottom line is this. I want children to be baptized intelligently to understand what God is communicating to them in the sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Hence, I think it is wise to wait just a little bit, even if a child is professing faith when they're younger, wait a little bit so they can better understand what God is saying to them. I think this is, the failure to do that is one of the reasons uh, there, Trevin Wax describes it as a plague in Baptist churches. And the plague in Baptist churches is the plague of adults coming or older believers coming and saying, I want to be rebaptized. I want to be baptized again. Okay, baptism should happen once. Why do you want to be rebaptized again? This is the reason. I didn't know what I was doing the first time. I, know, I, I was baptized, I said maybe the right things, but I, I didn't understand, right? And in conversations that I've had with people, several people, this comes up often. Someone who's baptized young says, ah, I wish I would have waited until I was a little bit older so I understood. Or parents say, I wish I would have waited a little bit longer. This is a common thing. And I think there's some legitimacy to that sentiment. Like, God in baptism is communicating something. And we want to be at an age where we actually understand what he's saying. And therefore, I don't think we should overly scrutinize a child's profession of faith. I don't think we need to wait till they're adults. But wait till they achieve a modest level of de developmental maturity, somewhere around 10, 9, 10, something like that. I think that allows us to affirm the reality of a child's faith, if they're professing faith and still say, let's hold off on baptism until you can understand just a little bit better what's going on. So, in summary then, let's disciple our children with intentionality and expect God to work. Point them to Jesus, read the Bible with them, pray with them, let's encourage one another in this work. And when a child professes faith and there's no obvious reason to 
not think it's real, affirm that faith. Praise God you're trusting in Jesus. Continue trusting in Jesus. If that faith, uh, profession of faith comes earlier in life, just say, let's just wait until you're a little bit older, and then we will bring you to the baptismal pool. May God grant that as we seek to be faithful in this and we're helping one another uh, do this, we will see our children walking with the Lord from the earliest days of their life. And we'll have every reason to rejoice in all of the boring testimonies that are emerging uh, out of our families. Let's pray together.